This morning, we want to get started. We'll be in Matthew 24 for most of the morning, but I want to continue our study of some basic doctrines with a little eschatology thrown in here. Now, that eschatology, that may be one of those college words you're saying, what in the world is he talking about? Well, eschatology is basically the study of last things, um, specifically Bible prophecies about the end of time. So it's a pretty interesting subject. Now, as we consider what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, I want you to know that we really in, enter an area um, with complex and controversial human theories and speculation. The truth of the matter is, if you were to go into any um, bookstore, especially a Bible bookstore, um, you will find more volumes on prophecy and the end times than any other topic. That is a big section in the bookstore. And yet as you begin to read those books, if you take them off the shelf and you start thumbing through them, you'll also find that although all the writers claim that the Bible is their source, there's very little consensus um, between them about what the Bible actually says. You know, and it seems like every day there's just a new theory or there's more speculation. And frankly, um, it's all kind of confusing when you look at it that way, which should immediately raise some um, red flags or some flashing yellow lights because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not the author of confusion. You know, it shouldn't be that way. Now, some of you Bible college students and others that do a lot of study, you may have heard the name um, Lewis Foster, Dr. Lewis Foster. He's one of the, uh, the theologians in our brotherhood. And uh, he said, basically, there are six basic frameworks or theological approaches to the study of, of uh, eschatology. There's the spiritual, the preterist, the futurist, the continual historical, the historical cycle, and the dispensational approach. He said all within that study of eschatology. And inside of those um, interpretive frameworks there, there's a whole continuum of views on the particulars. In other words, they branch off little rabbit trails going everywhere there. And furthermore, there's a great controversy and, and further divisions um, within some of the views over what the Bible calls the millennium. So you can see this, this subject just goes in all kinds of branches. Now, 22, about 22 years ago, um, you heard the word millennium a lot. You know, you heard that. You heard it all the time. But, but theologically speaking, um, millennium refers to a thousand-year era prophesied in the scripture wherein all the messianic prophecies given to Israel would be fulfilled. That's what it's talking about in the Bible. If you remember, it was Isaiah who spoke of a day when men would beat their swords into plowshares. You remember reading that in the scriptures? And the lion would lay down with the lamb. You remember that? And then in the 20th chapter of Revelation, it also speaks of a thousand year period in which Satan is bound and Christ reigns upon the earth. Now, one's millennial position is one's basic belief about when Jesus will return in relation to the millennium. That's the way that you, you would believe. Now, a little backstory on, of history here to just kind of 
put you in the mood of what we're thinking about. Prior to World War I, most Christians were what we called post-millennial. See, seeing that, you know, all the great advancement of missions throughout the world and seeing the great advances in medicine and technology, they believed the church was winning the world for Christ. They believed that the things on earth, they were getting better and better. That was the mindset of the folks prior to World War I. And, and they believed that um, after a literal or maybe even a figurative um, thousand years of bliss, you know, as the church um, completed its conversion, the, um, the world um, of the world, Christ would return. And folks, these Christians at that time, they strongly defended their views with Scripture. But then came World War I. And as believers saw mankind using all the new technology and all the new science to maim and destroy their fellow man, most Christians lost their faith that the world was getting better and better. They took a different view of things. So from that time, and it's kind of reaching its zenith of of popularity in the mid-1970s, many modern evangelicals, they embraced premillennialism. That's where they went to then. Now, premillennialism, uh, or pre, the premillennial view, basically says that the world is getting worse and worse, and at some point in the future, Christ would return, and he would take his church from earth. Well, there would also be upon earth a period of judgment known as the tribulation. That's what they believed. Now, within the premillennial, uh, within premillennialism, there was the pre-trib and the mid-trib and the post-trib, and, you know, premillennialists. So they went branching off in all these different directions. And all that stuff has to do with their belief about exactly when Jesus would come back for his church. Well, all the premillennialists, they believe that following the tribulation, Christ would return a third time to establish a physical reign upon the earth for a literal thousand years. That's what they believe. You know, and then eternity would begin. Now, premillennialists, they have a regrettable tendency to look at current events and culture, you know, and they try to read these things into their biblical interpretations. And even today, as we're sitting here, in part because of some really excellent marketing skills of things like the Left Behind book series, this is the most popular position among evangelical lay people. You see, premillennialism is trendy, and it sells, and it sells material. So they do that. However, most of today's evangelical scholars hold to a third view, which is called amillennialism. Now, historically, down through the centuries, this has probably been the most popular view of eschatology. Amillennialists, they've always tried very hard not to allow current culture to color their biblical exegesis or their um, interpretation of a text. They don't believe 
that the millennium is or was ever intended to be understood as a literal thousand years, but rather that the best and most consistent way to view the Bible, especially in the light of history, is to view millennial prophecies in a spiritual sense. They believe that that um, most millennial prophecies have already been um, fulfilled spiritually in the church age. Our millennialists, they believe that any day Jesus could return, and when he does, it's over. He will judge the living and the dead, and eternity will begin. Now, that's probably where most of you fit in there. One minister friend, he explains, he explained it this way. He said, now here's my understanding of the Bible of the, on the end times. He said, imagine that a brick wall was three or six foot thick. Now that's a thick brick wall. But he said, imagine there was a brick wall, six foot thick. And imagine someone on the other side of that wall drilled five or six small holes through it. Now through each of those holes, you could all look through there and you could see a small picture of the other side. You know, you could see some things about what was over there. You couldn't see everything, but you could see small glimpses of some things over there. Um, But your picture would be incomplete. You couldn't begin to understand everything that happened on the other side of that wall. You know, you could, you could not see all the relationships between those little glimpses on the other side. I like to think of it this way. You know, what if a football game was being played on the other side of the wall and you had never, ever heard of football? You didn't know what kind of game it was. You never heard it. You never seen it. You had no idea. And you were looking through those holes. You know, you might think that you saw a Martian run by, you know, if you've never seen that. You know, you'd see numbers in a series of lines on the field, but you would have no idea what they symbolize. And any and all conclusions about the meanings and their functions, it would just be guesswork on your part. It would just be conjecture. Now, God has indeed, He's given us some glimpses of the end and of eternity, but He's not connected all the dots for us. There's a lot of things that we just do not know. Matter of fact, he hasn't even begun to fill in um, all the blanks. And clearly in our lives, um, we have nothing in our lives to relate to what we've seen. So all of our speculation and all of our conjecture or all of our guesswork is kind of in vain because we don't know everything. So my minister friend says this, and it might have been Jack Cottrell. Um, I can't remember um, who said this comment, but he says, I'll tell you this. He said, I'm a pan-millennialist. He said, I believe all things will pan out in the end. That was his, his deal. So he says, I do not believe a person's views that at the end of time ought to be a test of fellowship because in some areas it's just not that clear to us. But what I want to share with you um, for today's message is this. So this is I want you to get this kind of in your mind before we get into the message. Four foundational facts for today's message. Well, first of all, since God is not the author of confusion, I mean, the scripture says that, 
since he's not the author of confusion. And because there's so much confusion on this subject, we all know one thing, fact number one, something is wrong with the approach that most people are taking to this subject. Fact number two, God is perfectly capable of communicating clearly everything he wants us to know. You know, if God wanted us to know every detail about the end of the world, he could have just removed the wall. I mean, we could have looked at all that stuff, but he didn't, you know. Um, but he hasn't done that. So for his reasons, he has chosen at this time not to reveal everything to us. We just don't know everything. So fact number three. In the Bible, God has communicated to us everything he wants us to know about the end. You know, I think that's common sense. We can believe that. If he wanted us to know more, he would have put more in there. It would have been more clear. In fact, number four, God's concern with this subject, as with all Scripture, is that you and I be doers of the Word and not hearers only. He's more concerned with that. In other words, God is concerned that you and I respond appropriately to the things He's already shown us. And for us not to be sidetracked by vain controversies or meaningless speculations about things that he must not want us to know yet, much less worry about. So it's something to think about. So today, I want us to just look together through a couple of those holes, the things that we can see, and I want us to highlight some of those things that, Je that Jesus clearly wants us to know, but I do not want to add to the confusion, you see. But I do want to challenge you and myself to respond appropriately to the revelation that we've received from God, the things that we know, as a matter of fact. Now, Matthew 24, we find the Lord's most comprehensive teaching on the subject. Now, I know Woody's going to get into this parallel passage next week, so I hope I don't get into his territory too much. Now, frankly, we don't have time to do a proper exegesis of this passage. There's just too much material here. There's enough material for a dozen sermons. But to understand this chapter, talking about chapter 24, you got to understand that in chapter 23, Jesus and his disciples had just walked through the temple where Jesus had made a disturbing comment about how the temple was going to be destroyed. Now this is how we're getting into this, this message. Well then he takes his disciples out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the top of the Mount, of Mount of Olives, where they sat down. Now, if you go on a Holy Land tour, you can get a guide to take you around to these places. I haven't been over there, but I've, had, I've talked to many who have. And they, you know, they're saying that uh, today there is now a beautiful garden at this spot. And the Lord's Prayer is written on stones in every language you know, the whole world, all around this cave where we believe Jesus often sat with the twelve. And there he was sheltered from the sun and the elements, and Jesus taught them. But after about 20 minutes or so of walking and thinking all about what Jesus had said there, the disciples asked two questions. And now we're in chapter 24 where the gist of our message will come from. And the two questions he asked, you see in verse 3 there, tell us when this will happen. Now, they're talking about uh, the destruction of the temple. Tell us when this will happen. 
And then the second question was, you know, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, to put this in perspective so we understand it, understand that the disciples, they seem to have made the false assumption there that those two events, the destruction of the, the temple and the end of the age, would happen simultaneously, would happen at the same time. But as we know, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., just a few years later. And of course, Jesus had not yet returned, and the world had not ended yet. So as we read Matthew 24 here, we need to be aware that Jesus is addressing two separate questions here. He tells them of the destruction of the temple, and he also interweaves here his answers concerning the end of the age. Well, we'll get down to number two on your outline. You know, what did Jesus say would be the signs of the end? Well, in Matthew 24, um, verses 4 and 5, he said, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So the first thing we learn is many false teachers will come. Many false teachers will come. Folks, Jesus said in the last days that, that many will be deceived. Many are going to, to buy into a false Christianity. Then in verses 6 through 8, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed, for such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of of birth pains. So sign number two, there's wars and rumors of wars. Sign number three, many natural disasters, famines and earthquakes. However, I want you to notice, Jesus said they are just the birth pains. Now, I can't tell you about birth pains, but we've got a lot of women in this building that can. You know, and from what I understand from them, Birth pains begin as mild contractions which occur far apart. Not a real big deal, but what happens the closer you get to birth? The closer you get to the end there, the pains come closer and closer and they grow more and more intense. Is that correct? Exactly. So, you know, and so it'll be with... Um, with all these signs, talking about the signs of the end of the time. Now, the $10 million question is how far along are we now? That's what everybody wants to know. How far along are we now? How far apart are the signs? How intense are the birth pains that mark the Lord's coming? You know, that's the $10 million question. That's what everybody wants to know. Well, you would have to be blind not to see all these signs. We see them every day. And I see them intensifying and coming closer and closer together every day. And so do you. But because I've never been through this before, I really have no idea how close we are to the end. I have nothing to measure it against. I just have my little time and space that I see. Not everybody else's. So sign number four, Christians will be persecuted. 
Verse 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now, we don't feel this too much yet, but folks, it's well documented that in various places around the world, more and more Christians are suffering for their faith. There's more martyrs today than ever before in history. Even some of our own missionaries tell about things that's going on with the folks that they um, minister to. And we see that. So we know that that's happening. Sign number five, great moral decline and apostasy. Verses 10 through 12. At the time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of, most, uh, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Sign number six. Even amid all this horror, the gospel will advance. Verse 14 here. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, those are the signs of the end, but the Bible goes on to give us vivid description of the end. You know, Jesus drills a few holes in the wall here. First of all, he said, it will be sudden. It will be sudden. Look at verses um, 26 and 27. If anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Folks, when Jesus returns and the end comes, it's going to be sudden. It's going to happen right now. Second thing, it's going to be dramatic. It will be dramatic. Verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the skies and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. Folks, when this happens, you're not going to miss it. You will hear the trumpet. You will hear the call. You will see Jesus Christ when He returns in the cloud with power and great glory. And the third thing, it's going to be definitive. It's going to be definitive. Um, verses 31 through 33. When the trumpet sounds, the angels will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And verse 32 says, Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you will know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all of these things, you will know that it is near, right at the door. Now, we're still in Roman number two there, the second thing. Um, if you back up to that, I want to give you what, according to the Bible, is the seventh sign and probably the most definitive sign of our Lord's return. And this one may surprise you. You know, just as Jesus, um, just before Jesus returns, as crazy as this world is, and as crazy as things are going to be, 
Things will be just like they've always been. Things will be just like they've always been. People will be living their normal lives, disregarding the warnings of God. Look at verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Folks, if you read a book, or you're watching on TV, or you hear someone say they know when Jesus is coming back, you can know for certain they're a wacko or they're lying or they're in it for the money because they don't know. Because Jesus said, no one knows. Not even the Lord knows the hour of the day. Well, if the Bible says no one knows, not even the Lord knows, do you think anybody else knows? Absolutely not. So if we believe that, all those books, and it's just bone. Um, but when the Lord does return, when it does happen, verse 37 and following says this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah, before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with the hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. You see, people is going to be doing what they've always been doing, eating and drinking and working and raising families and, and living their lives without regard to God. They're going to be doing what they've always been doing. If you remember, Noah preached for 120 years, you know, that the flood was coming. But no one listened to him. Now for 2,000 years, the church has been proclaiming the Lord's return, and yet most people will not heed that warning. So it's going to be just like that in the days of Noah. Now I want to close with the most important point. You know, we've seen the things of the end and the description of the end. Now, don't miss this. Here are three lessons for the end of the world right here. Now, in verse 42 through 51, Jesus was concluding his teaching here. He said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming... He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must, so you also must be ready. For the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect it. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Folks, to whom has God entrusted the bread of life, you know, food for the souls of men. Who has he entrusted with that? Us, the church here. Verse 46, And it will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Talking about feeding people with the master's bread. That's what we want to be doing when the master comes. Verse 47, I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. 
The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And folks, if I was there, a normal sermon would end about here, but I can't do it because Jesus' sermon didn't end here. I want to add this much, and it's, it's kind of short. To make sure that we understood the lessons in the end, Jesus told three very familiar stories, and we'll go through them. Chapter uh, 25 and verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom, you see here, he's gone away. He hadn't come back yet, but the virgins were going out to meet him. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lampstand. Folks, the wise... They were ready. They were prepared for the Lord's coming. Verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. Well, you know the story here. Um, verse 6, at midnight, um, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. But the foolish virgins, they weren't prepared and they could not go. You know that story. But the wise virgins, the ones who were ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the Bible says at the end of verse 10 there, and the door was shut. In verse 11, when the foolish virgins arrived to the banquet, they said, sir, sir, open the door for, you know, for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. And the Lord's own application to this particular parable, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So lesson number one for the end, be wise and stay ready. Be wise and stay ready. Now, moving along, verse 14, Jesus told another parable here. He said, again, that day will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his property to him. He to one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Now, the Lord, you know, our Lord, he's also gone away, and he's entrusted to us his business. Now, think about that. We've got an awesome responsibility. The Lord has trusted to you and me his business. To each of us, he's given gifts and opportunities and a sphere of, of influence around us. Now, these, you know, now two of these men, they were faithful, they were industrious, they were very productive. You know, they did their best for the master with all that he entrusted to their care. And when he returned, he rewarded them with the word. Look in verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come out and share your master's happiness. But one buried his talent. He wasted his time. He had no passion for the Lord's interest. And to this one, um, whom all of his life produced absolutely no fruit, the master said this in verse 26, you wicked, lazy servant. Then in verse 30, and he was thrown into the outside, into the darkness, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the lesson here is, 
Be faithful and stay busy. Be faithful and stay busy. You know, I like the old hymn, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work till Jesus comes, and then we'll be gathered home. You know, how true is that? Folks, our master has gone away, but he will return one day, and he will call each one of us to give an account for our stewardship. Folks, we're going to have to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and give an account of our stewardship. So we need to um, be faithful and we need to stay busy for him. And finally, Jesus, he concluded. In other words, so that they would not misunderstand about the end times, he concluded with this, this parable. So Matthew 25, verses 36 through, uh, thir uh, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you um, since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of these least, or of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the lesson here for your faith in, in your religious life is this. Be ready and pay attention to the little things. Be ready and pay attention to the little things. Be a sheep, not a goat. You know, love and serve and minister to others for the Lord Jesus Christ. And even to the Lord Jesus Christ as you love and serve and minister to the least of these. Now we do your job. So here are the three lessons for the end of the world. Be wise and stay ready. Be faithful, stay busy. Be real and pay attention to the little things. Folks, let me encourage you to practice a faith that is useful and true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
We thank you for the strong warnings about the end of time. Father, thank you for those warnings for us. We need to be ready. We need to stay ready to meet you. Father, when we stand before you, help us to be able to stand before you and give answers that you and I both would be proud of. Father, if there's one here this morning that cannot do that, we pray that the Spirit would touch their hearts and they would be willing to accept you as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.